Well, good morning, Third Street. Good morning. good morning. Good morning. I saw a whole lot of spiritual movement here in this last just buff this bumper video. I was I'm gonna want to see this in worship later on. I saw a whole lot of this going on, a lot of this going on. So just later on, I want to see the same thing. Um, so my name is Deshaun, uh, otherwise known as Dish, uh, associate pastor here at Third Street, and it is my privilege and honor to uh, lead us in the Word this morning. Um, the Spirit is is on the move at all times, not just when we feel it, not just when we think it feels nice, but the spirit is in the move at all times. But this morning specifically, I just want to point out that that we have been ushered into the spirit's presence by the worship team this morning. So I just want to, I want to give props where it's due. Thank you, worship team, for preparing, for being intentional, and for being spirit-led. Amen? All right, so we are in this series called Philippians, um, and uh, we are... Uh, walking right along through it, and I've got a lot here. I've just got to be honest with you. I did not time this when I prepared it, so I'm going to work through this so I don't keep you all here all day. Um, all right, so the series we're in um, with Philippians, the theme of it is joy, right? Uh, and any anytime Paul writes anything, it's always instead of, instead of, right? So instead of saltiness, have joy. Instead of uh, uh, conceit, have Humility, right? So this is the theme of Philippians is instead of being salty, being grumbling, have joy. He points out circumstances don't determine your outlook. Instead of hopelessness, have contentment, thanksgiving. Instead of pride and vanity and conceit, have humility. Now, for those of you who have not been with us and maybe don't know the book of Philippians, I'm going to recap it real quick for you. The Apostle Paul, one of the most prolific uh, apostles of Jesus in the, first te- in the first century is writing a letter to this church in this place called Philippi. Uh, Philippi is in what would be now known as the northeastern part of Greece, right, where Asia and Europe meet together. And Paul had been there on a missionary journey. He was going somewhere else. God gave him a vision and said, go to this place. He went and he established a church there with a little ragtag group of people. And eventually this church became a problem to the community there because it was preaching a message that went against what they were trying to establish, right? It was preaching a message of hope and, and, and salvation and, and one God, and that was not what was happening in the city at the time, in the Roman Empire. So Paul has already established this church. He's somewhere else. Turns out Paul is causing trouble in places, so he gets imprisoned. Well, he's on house arrest. If they had ankle monitors, Paul would have an ankle monitor. They did not. They had a guard that they changed him to. That's a little different. Thank God for ankle monitors and not physical human beings that have to be chained to your leg, right? So Paul is writing this letter on house arrest to the church in Philippi. And he's telling them, hey, I'm proud of you guys. I'm proud of what you've done. I am proud of who you have grown up into. I love seeing God at work in you. I love seeing the growth that's there. I love that I can write to you and I can feel a sense of joy. There's not a whole lot of things to be happy about, but I'm joyful about what I see God working in you. Paul reminds them about what was really important so that they can live with a righteous character like Jesus. He tells them in verse 1 to live as citizens of heaven and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Basically, live up to who you are in Jesus. Don't live like the old self. Live up to who Christ makes you. Amen. Amen. And the way you do that is by emptying yourselves. Last week, Pastor Kenny 
talked about this idea of, of, of Jesus not grasping, not exploiting, not taking advantage of his divinity, of who he was, his godness, not, not taking that for granted, not taking it for advantage, but actually emptying himself of that so that we could experience that closeness to God. And he says, if you want to make me happy, stop bickering, stop grumbling, stop fighting, empty yourselves of your opinions, empty yourselves of your, of your uh, uh, prejudices, empty yourselves of anything that might get in the way of you becoming more like Christ. The passage that he read from last week was Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's called the Christ hymn. It's one of the most beautiful encapsulations of like Jesus as a person, but also reminds us of who we are in him. I'm not going to read through it, but basically at the end of it, what we were just singing about here at the very end, what Rev was trying to push us into was that last little part that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, that is the goal. That is where we want to get to. Now, this brings us to where we are today. I'm going to read Philippians 2, 12 to 16, so I want you to stick with me. I'm going to read it. If you have your Bibles, turn there in your Bibles. If you have your phones, you have the app there, turn there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. But before we jump into the reading, I just want to pray and get through this in, in a way where we can understand, in a way that we can walk through this together. And hopefully, hopefully some of y'all come back and not turned away by by the challenge I give you today. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for, for doing what you've done for us. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for taking our sins upon yourself. Thank you for ushering us into your presence at all times. When we, as Roz was saying, even if we tried to cuss somebody out this morning, even if we had the most unpure thoughts this morning before we came in, Lord, thank you that your work on the cross washes us clean. If only we would believe and confess with our mouths that you are Lord and repent of our sins. And so, Lord, as we walk through this word, would you show us what it means to live up to who you've made us to be? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Philippians 2, 12 to 16, let's read. Therefore, because of what I just said to you in verses 5 to 11 about who Jesus is and who he makes you, therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing or in vain. The RSV or ESV translation, which I love here, says, therefore, right, kind of connecting to the last one. So for that reason, for what I just talked about who Jesus is, consequently, then do this. In other words, because of who Jesus is and the way he humbled himself and didn't grasp or exploit his equality with God, then we should submit to discipleship and work out our salvation. That might be something to hang some people up. Say, work out our salvation, but Jesus already did it. Why do I have to work anything out? Like, the work's been done for me. Well, hold on there. So, in Matthew, 
Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story. And I love Jesus telling stories. I like to talk. It's who I am. I jive with Jesus telling stories. Amen. Right? So I'm going to talk now and tell a story in the same way Jesus would have. He said, there was once a master who went on a trip. He was a wealthy man. He had a lot of money, and he had to go out on business. So this master goes out on business, but before he goes out, he sets in charge three servants of his to be in charge of things while he's away. To one servant, he gives a certain amount of money. Now, we don't know the exact amount. There's varying, differing opinions about what it was or how much. It doesn't really matter. Let me just say the first servant, he gives $500,000. He had a lot of money. Here's $500,000. When I come back, I hope you've done something with it. I'll be back. Second servant, he gives $200,000. Do something with this. I'll be back. Third servant, he gives $100,000. Do something with this. I'll be back. Now, there's not really any good reason as to why he gave certain amounts to different servants, but likely it's because they had different levels of potential in what they could do. He knew who they were. He's like, look, I'm going to give you what you can handle, and I expect, I see that you can produce something with what I give you, right? So it goes away. The first servant, servant one, immediately gets to work right away, goes out, and he doubles the amount of money he was given. He comes back with a million dollars. He goes route, he trades, he comes back, he's made a million dollars. Fantastic. Servant number two does the same thing. Goes out, gets to work, trades, makes $200,000 more. Doubles his money. Great. Third servant. He's a little afraid. He's afraid of messing up. He's afraid of failure. He's afraid of, what if I don't do this right? What if I go out and I actually lose money and don't gain money, then the servant's going to come back, or the master's going to come back, he's going to be angry. You know what I better do? I better just hide this money. I'm just going to bury this money in the ground. And when he comes back, he won't even be mad because I'll be stable. Like, I'll have the same amount he gave me. I didn't lose a cent. Whew, I'm not going to get punished. Master comes back, and of course, he's pleased with servant number one because he just made him $500,000 more. He went to work. He used the potential that the master saw in him to work out what he was given. And he comes back and, and the master is pleased with him. Servant number two, same thing. Worked hard on his investment and he made a profit. But servant number three goes to the hole that he dug his money and he, he brings it up and he says, here, I, I'm going to give this to you. I didn't want to lose it. At least I'm stable. At least I didn't lose anything, right? Like we're good. Like I know you were a harsh man and, and if I lost anything, you might be upset. And the master looks at him and says, you wicked and lazy servant. What are you worrying about my business? You, I, run, I have my business. I run my business the way I run it. I gave you a responsibility to do. You don't understand the way I do things, but you chose fear. You chose self-preservation instead of obedience. And he throws him out. He says, get out of here. Go find a job somewhere else. I'm going to give your money to these other servants that worked on their investment. Now, what's the point of this? Fear and self-preservation kept this servant from being effective in the mission and vision his master had given him. He was not sharing the mission and vision of his master. He was more worried about preserving himself. And so he thought he was being stable by hiding his responsibility. He thought he was 
He was taking care of things, not losing anything, but he was actually taking someone else's chance to be effective. He might as well have just said, don't even give me that. Let someone else handle that. They might be more effective with this. In the absence of supervision in your walk. Now, this is, this is to you who, who, who say you love Jesus, who say you believe in Jesus. Christians, those of us here this morning who say, I want my life to be defined by the person of Jesus. In the absence of supervision, are you still working? Are you still investing? Do you share the vision and mission of the master, Jesus. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not up here preaching to you as if I know I'm like the sage of all sages. I'm writing this out when I'm preaching, when I'm, when I'm preparing, and I'm going, God, please, like, like, work this out in me. So when I'm preaching at you, don't think, wow, this guy up here, this, as Corey said, Cliff Huxtable-looking guy up here. <laughs> yeah, that's your pastor, by the way. I walk up in here, and the first thing he says, he's like, what's up, Mr. Huxtable? I'm like, come on, man. I'm not up here saying these things as if I don't experience them myself. This is, this is me working this out as well. We're in this together. Yes, right. In the absence of supervision, are you willing to risk loss and reputation to obey the master? Are you burying your responsibility? Are you hiding your responsibility, God-given responsibility? Or are you actively making a difference with what you've been given? So the phrase to work out means to carry out to completion or to do something to thoroughness. Now, does this mean to work for your salvation? It does not. So my first point this morning is stagnation is not the same as stability. Stagnation is not the same as stability. The master left this man with a certain amount to be responsible with, and he felt he was being responsible and stable. As a matter of fact, he was being he was being stagnant. The master actually said, why didn't you put my money into a bank account where it could at least accumulate a little bit of interest? Like, just something. You didn't do anything with it. And my challenge to you this morning is, are you mistaking your stagnant Christian walk with stability? So he's not saying work for your salvation. right? Paul is clear about this in all his other letters. And Jesus was clear about this also in Mark 10, 17, when Jesus was talking to a rich young man, he asked him, you know, the, the rich young man comes up to him, Jesus, master, teacher, rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts out by telling him, keep the commandments. Check. Done that. Good to go. The young man says, uh, yeah, I, I'm good. What else? Then he says, okay, go sell everything you have. I see you're wealthy. I see your drip. I see the swag you've got going on. Go sell everything you have. Then come back. And the young man looks down at his Jordans and his Supreme T-shirt. <laughs> I'm not coming for anybody. I'm just trying to make it relevant. And he walks away because he knows that those things have a greater hold on his heart than what he could possibly give to the master. So Jesus is telling him, look, you don't have to do anything because, you know what, humanly speaking, it's impossible for you to inherit the kingdom of God by yourself. 
Because his disciples asked him, look, man, he did everything. How, who can actually inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, humanly speaking, it's impossible. You can't do it on your own. Amen. There's nothing you can do to earn your place before God. But with God, all things are possible. Paul in Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So clearly working out your salvation is not the same as working for. It rather means to activate our faith, to allow and activate our faith to infiltrate everything that we do. In other words, Jesus, now catch this, Jesus has already done a complete work for you. But it may not yet be a complete work in you. So Jesus already did the work for you. Salvation is already achieved on the cross because of what Jesus did. But you are working out, you're living out your salvation daily. Let me, no, let, who can tell me at the moment at which you're saved, right? You receive Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming into my heart, taking my sins. I'll follow you for the rest of my life. At that moment, who can tell me that you sinned no more? Raise your hand. Crickets, right? No, nobody stopped sinning on the day of receiving Jesus in your heart because the complete work of salvation was done on the cross, but the complete work of salvation is not done yet within us. It was done for us, but it's still working out within us. That makes sense? So do you have extra time in your life? What are you doing with that time? What does it look like for you to be active with that time? Are you waiting on someone else to do the same thing that God has prompted you to do? God, you put this thing on my heart, but I, I, man, this room is full. I'm sure somebody else has got the same calling as me. Somebody, raise your hand. Are you doing what God has been prompting you to do, or are you waiting on someone else? What resources and talents has God given you? Yeah, it might be time. We talk about it all the time. It's times, uh, I'm sorry, time, talents, and treasures, right? So what gifts do you have? Worship team up this morning, you know what they did? They have actively exercised the gifting and talents that God has given them to bring praise and worship and usher us closer, closer, closer into the presence of God. Right? You might not be a singer. That's okay. We don't want you singing off key up there. Out here, all good. All good. Sing off key all you want. (laughs) That's all good. Make a joyful noise to the Lord out here. Don't volunteer to be up there, though. Find some other talent. Give some other gift, please. Up your, up your tithing if you are a third street attendee. That's the reason I'm not up there. Have you made your time, your availability, something that you're willing to offer the Lord? We have so many teams that are starting to grow, and as we're growing numerically as a church, we need volunteers. Like straight up, we just need volunteers. Children's right now, we need volunteers. My wife would, yes, just, just please, like volunteer of your time, your efforts. If you're sitting here thinking, I don't know what to do, we will, we will find something for you to do. Does your bank account actively, does your bank account reflect the gospel message? No. Felt like that was an appropriate time to take a drink. Let you think on it. If you're having trouble being consistent, 
with your tithing or giving to others in need, but you have extra cash flow to get the latest threads and accessories, you may be reflecting the world and not the gospel. Let's keep reading. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Paul is making a point here to show the reverence that we should have for God. I think we have to be careful when we read this because fear and trembling, those terms have a negative connotation. Right? We, we, we hear those terms and we think, ooh, dread, punishment, death. And I think we have to really think about what Paul is trying to insinuate. What is meant here is a loving, reverent, respecting awe. It means that we don't take our Christian walk lightly. We understand that what, what we're up to is important kingdom business. There are serious, there are souls at stake. There are people's eternities and, and, and people's right nows. People are experiencing hopelessness now. And if we take our Christian walk seriously, then that means that we get to activate the things that God has given us to, 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 to positively impact someone else's right now, but even more importantly, their eternity. That's that fear and trembling. Our witness matters, and so does the way in which we relate to each other. So when Paul tells the Philippian church this, he's saying, look, like it matters how you treat each other. It matters how you, how you follow God and are obedient to him because people are watching your lives. Yes, sir. And when people are watching your lives, what they see, are they going to see the same as what they're reflecting, or are they going to see something different that is unique and, 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 and attractive and inspiring and, and challenging? If you'll remember, again, this theme in Philippians is about joy, but also unity. And Paul is saying that if we're living like Jesus, then we are taking on and living out what God has already put in us. Which is my second point. You can only work out what God has already worked in you. Verse 13 says, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to both will and to to do for his good pleasure, to work for his good pleasure. I love the Old Testament. It's visually stunning. It's, it's poetic. It's weird. It's, it's so confusing. It's mind-bending. I love it. I'm weird. It's okay. I think the Old Testament was written because we needed to understand that we can't fully grasp who God is. And then when Jesus came, he's like, I'm going to fulfill all of that. So you don't have to try to understand who God is. You just have to receive him. Because if we try to, we might go crazy. Like God is, is beyond what we can comprehend. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 37. And is the, the prophecy in which the prophet Ezekiel has this, this vision of a valley with, with bones that are coming to life and there's, there's, there's flesh being put on them and all of that. But just before that, there's this beautiful section in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. It's going to be up on the screen. And this passage talks about how God puts his spirit in us. And he says, again, he's a prophet speaking to the people of Judah, a segment of the Israelites who had been separated and they've been exiled. They're living somewhere where they shouldn't be. They're in other foreign lands. And he's saying to them, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So God is the one who's putting his spirit, who's putting his new heart into his people. God is the one who does that for you. You don't, you don't, have, you don't have to do that on your own. You can't work that out on your own. God has to put that in you. Jesus reminds his disciples something similar in John 15 when he says, look, I'm going away. I'm leaving. But when I leave, the father will send a counselor, an advocate, the Holy Spirit, and he will come and he's going to remind you of everything I taught you. So don't worry. My presence being gone, it doesn't mean that God's presence isn't with you. So this is a, a, this is a manifestation, Jesus is saying, of what happened in Ezekiel 36. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm telling you God's going to put his spirit right here for you to experience and to walk out this new flesh and new heart. What's the point? Your, your spiritual growth is dependent on what God has already done in you. Amen. You don't have spiritual growth without God putting that desire in you. If you have an, a, a wholesome thought, if you have a good thought, a good action, a selfless thought, thank God for putting that in you. And if you are lacking in those thoughts, ask God to give you that desire. God, give me the desire to have pure thoughts. God, give me the desire to be kind and gentle. Give me the desire to want you. Because right now my heart wants something else more, and I know it. But give me the desire to want you more than that thing. I think sometimes we forget that being a Christian is not meant to be easy, but it's a process of purification. We sang that song, Refiner. Like, man, and I know it's cliche, but if you've ever heard of, like, metal being refined, it's not a nice process, right? It's not, like, a simple process. It's burning. It's, it's, it's chafing away. It's taking off the old so that you can have the new. I was talking to my son. This is a side. I didn't have this plan, but I was talking to my son yesterday. Asks these deep questions. He's eight. Uh, I think he's going to be a theologian. I pray. pray he is, because otherwise he's going to be a dictator. It's that, it's that close. It is that close. So he, um, somebody said true. Uh, so he's asking me this question, you know, uh, about revenge versus, you know, mercy or avenge or why does God avenge? And I, and I said, you know, you got to think about it like this. Like God avenges people in the Old Testament, right, because, because there was so much sin and death around the people, his people that it was going to threaten all of humanity. Like Satan was on the move and was threatening with all the nations around him. So he said he, he had to protect his people, and it was not nice what he did, but ultimately it was good. It was what was needed to preserve the people of Israel, which would then lead to Jesus, which would then lead to salvation of all people. You know, so I'm like, ah, that's a lot to explain. So I'm like, think about it like this. Like when we have, when somebody has cancer, and I'm in the medical field, so it made sense for me to explain it this way. When somebody has cancer, it's a tumor. And that tumor is grown cells that are out of control, that are destroying everything around there. And in order to be treated for that tumor, you got to do something not so nice to somebody, right? The nice thing, the, un, the do no harm, like I don't want to, would be to let that thing just do its course. Let's just, let's just hope it works out. But, but the good thing, the right thing to do, if you're a medical professional who's trying to treat somebody, is to cut that thing out. It's to, it's to excise that tumor, 
or to use a medication that's going to destroy those cells or to use beams of radiation that are going to destroy those cells. That is not nice, but it is good because ultimately you are preserving that person's life versus those tissues, amen? And so sometimes I feel like we, we, we forget that the process that we are under is treatment. We have a cancer within us and the process of treatment is not nice. It's difficult. You know, you, you, cancer patients lose hair. They, they, they lose, they get fatigued. They, there's all kinds of things that happen in the course of treatment. But in that treatment, their hope is I'm going to be well. In the process of purification as a believer, as a Christian, God is burning out the sin in you. Yes, sir. And you have to be willing to receive that treatment Amen. or you will die. I don't know how much plainer to put it like that. Like, if you are a believer in Jesus, it means that you are you have said, Jesus, work in me in a way that I might not like, but I know will lead to my good. It will lead to life. And so if you are sitting here this morning and 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 you're like, man, this is tough. This is hard. Yes, it is. But it is good. It is good. This process is good. In the late 80s, uh, this idea of working something out that is in you. In the late 80s, there was a father in Compton, California. He had two daughters. And he wanted his daughters to have a future. He wanted his daughters to excel. Around him, he looked around. There was drugs. There was gangs. There was death. There was, there was shootings. And he didn't know what to do. So he's watching TV. He sees the sport that's being played. It doesn't have many people that look like him. And he decides, you know what? I think, I'm, I think I can get this sport figured out. So he goes and he teaches himself how to play this sport. And then he comes and he teaches his daughters. And he says, hey, daughters, I want you guys to learn this sport because I have a vision. I have envisioned that you are going to play this sport and you're going to be the greatest of all time. And I'm sure his daughters thought, dad, you're so crazy. Why are you doing this? Don't do that. But they slowly bought into the vision that he had. Again, this is in Compton, California, one of the most crime-riddled places at that time. They're out there on this court playing this game, and there's, there's drive-by shootings that are happening that they have to duck to try to, get, to, to try to escape harm. But the father sticks true to the vision. He has this vision. He wants his kids to achieve this vision. He knows that they can do it. He sees it in them. And he says, I want you guys to, to trust in my vision, believe in it, work it out. Day by day, hour after hour, practice. They're missing out on things that little girls should otherwise be doing, playing with, with their friends. They're, they're grinding. They're working hard. All the while, the father continues to remind them of the vision that he has for them. Fast forward 20, 30 years later, we have two of the greatest tennis players of all time in Venus and Serena Williams, of all time. Male, female, doesn't matter. The reason why is because their father instilled a vision in them and said, I can see that you are going to be the greatest. And because I can see it, I'm going to help you work it out. I'm going to help you grind. I'm going to help you do the hard things. I'm going to help you sacrifice because I can see in you that you're going to do something great. Now, are you believing? Do you believe that God has seen something in you? Do you believe that God has a vision for you that is more than what you can see now? And are you willing to work it out? See, God has a vision for us. God has a vision for each one of us. Jesus tells us that much, that we are royalty, we are royal priesthood, right? That we, we, in him, can achieve more than what he did. He says to his disciples, 
man, if you believe in me, greater things than me you're going to do, which is mind-blowing. I've never walked on water. I want to because I can't swim. That would be great. <laughs> what? For real. But you can do greater things. Believe in that. Like, do you understand the, like, the magnitude of that? Jesus saying that you, if you believe in me, can do greater things. You cannot work out what you don't know is in you. So if you're here this morning and you have self-esteem issues, you, th- you hear that and you go, and that's not for me. He's not talking about me. Like, he doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know where I've been. He doesn't know the things I just thought. He doesn't know what I'm planning to do. No, man, like, if you believe in Jesus and you submit yourself to him, Paul is saying to the Philippians here, you, you will be able to work out greater things because God has already worked it in you. The fact that God himself would choose that. It should cause some fear and trembling, right? That's what I read back when I go into God chose in all of his holiness to make his home in me. That should give me a little bit of awesome fear, right? A little bit of trembling. See, God has already visualized something in you. And if you're willing to work it out, then you will realize it. My last point is in Christ, you're built different. So it's funny, if you, if, you, um, if you look up built different on Google, not Urban Dictionary, don't do that. If you look up built different on Google, it says uh, African-American vernacular, meaning on another level. I love that. You got to read it like that because I feel like somebody's wrong. That's African-American vernacular, meaning on another level. Sorry. It means you're unique. It means you're set apart, right? Built different. Nobody likes a grumble. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that prefacing what we're about to read. Nobody likes a grumble, period. I don't care who you are. You don't like to be around a grumble. Verse 14 to 16 says this. Do everything without complaining and arguing or grumbling so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. So Paul is referencing back to the Israelites in the Old Testament when they were walking through the wilderness after being set from Egypt. After like a grand total of six hours of being free, the Israelites got hot, and they ran out of snacks. And they started grumbling about not having all the things they had back in slavery, which is just wild. This is wild. Paul is instructing the Philippians and reminding them to not grumble like the Israelites did and not complain about their circumstances. God's provision is his provision. You don't grumble about that. What God has given you, he's given you. Right? You can pray and ask for more, but to grumble about it is to say, God, what you've given me is not enough. I know more than you do, so give me more of what I want, like a child. He says, don't grumble like that. And Paul's instructing them to remember that. He's saying their obedience to God should be immediate and without complaining, without hesitation, without second guessing. So I started a new job recently. Um, and I was reminded that, that almost every workplace has a dimmer switch. 
And I don't mean like the electrical component of the dimmer switch because we don't have those, but I mean like, like, a, like an individual who functions as a dimmer switch. You ever seen those dimmer switches at work where, right? And sometimes those dimmer switches go both ways. You know, that's, that's the beautiful thing about those. Right? And that's bright. It's great. Oh, it's mood setting, right? So this new job reminded me this because some dimmer switches are broken. They don't have a bright setting. They only have a low setting. When things are all normal average light, they only go down to the low setting. People function this way in their brokenness, I feel like, sometimes. And I hope it's not you. If that's you in your workplace, ask Jesus to fix you. I'm being serious. I'm just saying. I ask Jesus to fix me every day. Please. If that's you and someone's like, man, you're like the, the damper on this place, ask Jesus for forgiveness and to fix you. Right? Paul is saying here, don't be that dimmer switch. He's saying that to his people. He said, look, this is, this is, you, don't, you, you have been given more in Christ than you could ever have hoped for. So live like it. Live up to the calling which you were given. This is, this is the, the, the people that, that have no silver lining, that everything is a crisis, everything's a disaster. Or there's a new thing that rolls out, you're the first to roll your eyes. Any changes that happen, you start whispering. This is not who we are to be. He's saying don't be like that in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. He's saying instead, illuminate. Show, show, brightly shine where you are. Guide others around obstacles and away from darkness. That's what lights do. Even when you have every reason to complain and feel justified in doing so, even when people, places, and systems seem to be designed to make you feel second class, even when God's instructions or his answers to your questions seem unfair or his word seems inadequate or confusing, have the same mind of Christ and be humble, joyfully saying yes to the gospel message and living up to who God created you to be. When we hold fast to the gospel message of Jesus and we work out this faith that we've been given, then we can realize and activate what God has already visualized about us. And that's when people will look at you. That's when people will look at us. That's when people will look at a Christian and say, man, they're built different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us time and time again that you are for us. Thank you for reminding us time and time again how you through Jesus, have done so much for us already, and you ask us to work out this salvation, work out this faith with an awe and a reverence for you. Um, God, I pray for anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, who maybe is hearing the gospel message for the first time today. Lord, I pray that they, they would submit their lives to you, that they would repent of their sins, that they would confess with their mouths and their hearts that you are Lord in their lives, and that, that they would seek out um, someone to pray with, they would seek out someone to talk with, they would seek out someone to walk with in this. Lord, I pray for those of us who have claimed your name as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I ask that you would guide us, help us to today have very practical ways of how we can work out our salvation. Help us to see how there's nothing we can do to earn our place before you. But if we receive your spirit, 
if we'll let you work in us and work out of us, then our neighborhoods, our families, our communities, this whole world will be changed because of what you're capable of doing, because what you already visualized, you already saw so long ago. Lord, thank you. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.